0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 218. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 218 you're listening to. My guest today is Nick Luca. Nick is a multi-instrumentalist, musician, singer, songwriter, composer, music producer, and audio engineer, and he's toured throughout Europe, the U.S., Mexico, Canada, and Australia with Iron & Wine, Calexico, John Doe, and his own band, Luca. And as a session musician and audio engineer, he has credits on over 100 albums with artists such as Nico Case, Devochka, Robin Hitchcock, Margaret Cho, M. Ward, Darren Hanlon, and many others. Nick's an old friend that I know through former WCA guest, Craig Schumacher. And I got to say, based on Nick's talents, if I were to be reincarnated on this planet, I would come back and want all of Nick's talents because, man, he's got some crazy chops in all different areas of the world of music and recording. So very excited to have him come on. Nick Luca coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. If you listened to last week's episode with Tony Maserati, uh, you might recall I was asking everybody's advice about turntables, and I had set the budget at around $500. And very strange, many of you chimed in. I'm going to say about, I I think I got 10 recommendations of the same turntable, of the Project Debut Carbon. Yeah. Had never heard of it, dug into it a bit, and... Yeah, of course, now that I see it and I see all the different things you can add to it, uh, it's very easy to go past the $500 mark, so trying to, you know, keep it within budget. It's it's, it's the upgrades, of course, that get you. I wanted to go from the steel platter to the, uh, I don't know, what is it, the plexiglass platter? Not exactly sure. And have a built-in preamp, phono preamp there, too. So. I'm exploring all the options, so I just wanted to thank you all for your recommendations. I will uh, make a decision here in the coming coming weeks and uh, or coming I don't know a couple weeks and uh, buy myself a turntable. Yeah. And that'll be great to have because i've I've got some records. yeah. Here's another thing I'm kind of curious about. would love to uh, get your input on. and uh, you know we all have our tastes in reading, but I'm kind of curious. what are you reading? If you're reading something these days, are you reading? magazines are you reading books? If you're reading a book, what book are you reading? Doesn't have to be a music book, doesn't have to be a recording book. Send me a message at workingclassaudio.com. Also feel free to chime in on social media via Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is that you want to do there and uh, let me know what are you reading. And of course if you have good recommendations for recording books, would love to hear that. A number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the US, and I just love that whole thing. So, if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out, hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me, and we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Nick Luca. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you so much, Matt. Nice to hear from you. Welcome home from being on tour, being on the road with Devotchka. Devotchka, a really fun band to be out on the road with. We have so much to get into because I've known you for a while, so let's just do that. Okay, (laughs) Let's just
1: get into all of it. Start digging.
0: I originally met you via Craig Schumacher, the Potluck Audio Conference or the Tape Op Conference at the time. That's my recollection. You and Craig worked very closely. In fact, I, I don't know if I can't remember if you were a member of the band officially, but uh, Calexico, one of my favorite bands, you've worked very closely with, as has Craig. Yep. So, for the audience, that's the origin of, of, of our relationship. Indeed. So, let's, uh, let's go back in time a bit. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in rural New Hampshire, a small town called
1: Hollis which was uh, we had one flashing yellow light at the crossroads. That that was our the extent of our stoplight situation. So it was cows, more cows than people. So it was a pretty relaxing place. I You know, I used to love running around in the woods and building forts and making dams in the river and all that kind of stuff. And it was a pretty nice upbringing, but of course it was very, very boring. And uh, we... Started getting into rock and roll, me and my buddies in school at a pretty young age. I think I started playing guitar when I was like 12 or so. Picked it up, there was, I mean, there's literally nothing else to do. Lots of snow in New Hampshire. lots of, you know, ice skating and, but, uh, you know, so early on me and my friends, you know, we were into rock and roll, we were into music, we started playing. I started playing guitar. My dad actually was a guitar player just, you know, as a hobby. My mom also liked piano, she would take piano lessons, so we always had a piano in the house. So after school, I would come home and bang on the piano and kinda play on the guitar and, uh, you know, started putting little bands together and, and we put together a high school band called Coldfinger, And we were actually a band for seven years. And wow. yeah, and toured around. By the end of it, we had two vans, one, one van full of gear we had our own PA. We had two sound guys. <laughs> we were a six-piece band, and we were playing all over New England. And we had another van full of people. One van full of gear. We all. Our plan was to all go to different colleges so we could get gigs at those colleges, which we did, uh, which was pretty smart. Uh, we were a pretty crafty little group. Uh, we we came up in the jam band scene, you know. So we really had that model of fish before us where you would collect everyone's, you know, addresses and you'd mail out a flyer every month of the gigs you were doing and you would make posters and you would put them around town and we were really like gung-ho little group, you know, like we're gonna do this, we're gonna be a jam band too. It it was pretty amazing, you know, all pre-internet of course, so there was none, none of this emailing someone and booking a gig you just had to kind of call them or show up or (laughs) how many
0: members were in the band
1: so we had six people in the band we even had a keyboardist who had a an actual 88 key Rhodes and a leslie speaker and an organ and a with juno whatever those were 107 yeah we it was full-on man it was rock and roll we had huge ass cap speak amplifiers and you know one of those big puffy blue custom bass amps and all the good stuff we had everything good and the thing about it was 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 and this is sort of the the template for my life here as as we'll talk about is because of Hollis the small town that it was our lead singer was a guy named Jim uh is a guy named Jim and he uh was one of eight brothers so it was like an instant audience just by getting him in the band (laughs) It was like, we got, okay, we got eight brothers and all their, they each have four or five friends. Well, there's 30 people at every gig, no matter what we do, not even including (laughs) our brothers and sisters. So, (laughs) I mean, it was a built in crowd. So we would play Boston, you know, like TT the Bears or something, get some showcase night. And they'd be like, holy cow, you guys brought, you know, 60 people. Some high school band from nowhere, New Hampshire is bringing all these people because everybody in town, there was nothing else to do. We were the hottest thing around. So everyone just came to the gigs. We said, oh, we're playing in Boston. Oh, I'll drive there, you know, and, and they go down to the show and it made me kind of realize that. And, and then subsequently through college and then in Tucson, Calexico, when I met you, it's all about the community. You know, it's, yeah. it's all about the scene. It's all about the people, and, and Calexico is another great example. You know, Joey Burns is really good at just bringing people into the scene and keeping the scene going with young blood and old blood and, you know, people from all over the world, and you kind of make this suddenly our, you know, my little small town of New Hampshire is this sort of worldwide scene now
0: was was tucson the next stop in your journey actually
1: i after that i went uh after new hampshire i went to a college clark university in uh in worcester massachusetts and (laughs) um worcester which is a pretty tough place if you haven't been there a lot of i got a lot of points uh, a lot of soul points from living in worcester because that's a tough town but uh and there that that expanded my horizons you know In the 90s, it was early 90s, grunge was sort of taking off, you know, indie rock was happening, Dinosaur Jr. was not far down the road, they would play there a lot, Uh, so it kind of exposed me to, you know, my early band was, like I said, a jam band, we played classic rock covers pretty much, and we started writing original songs too, even when I was a kid, you know, I have some of my earliest tunes we still play, and then... You know, got to Clark and and Worcester, you know, I started getting into composition and music theory and decided to become a music major. Meanwhile, I was playing rock and roll on the weekends and doing like the sort of underground art uh, warehouse type of gigs, you know what I mean? While learning jazz on the other side and playing, you know, bass in the jazz band or whatever uh, for the school. And I thought Clark was really, really cool. You know, very liberal arts kind of place. There were a lot of people from, from other places and on the world. You know, it was it was a really uh, diverse setting uh, for the late '80s and, and early '90s. It was it was pretty amazing. So, uh, it really broadened my horizons. But again, it was a built-in scene. It was a built-in community. It was a built-in crowd. All we had to do was provide the music, provide the soundtrack, and the crowd would would show up and. And they did. It was it was it was really fun, and I, I learned a lot from from the teachers there because uh, you know I was listening to your podcast of um, Tony Maserati uh, mm-hmm. the other day, and I was like, man, I'm like the anti Tony. I like did everything completely wrong. <laughs> I did everything opposite of Tony. <laughs> like he's like he moved right to New York to work with the big shots. I was like, hmm, I'm gonna go to you know when he went to Berkeley to work with all the big people. like I'm gonna go to Clark and avoid all that. Uh, yet a lot of the professors were the same people, you know, they taught at New England Conservatory, they taught at Berkeley and they, you know, kind of like we do, we take adjunct gigs at, at various schools. So I felt like, you know, and we had very small classrooms. Some of them, it was only three, five kids in, in like the senior composition classes. So, uh, you know, we had real one-on-one, you know, attention from from a lot of these professors. And at that time it was like Berkeley, I was like, oh you know I don't want to deal with pop music. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that stuff. It, uh, it's just it's just everyone's a clone out of there. you know we which is not exactly true but uh, but that was my art perception at the time. It just you know it just it wasn't cool, man. I'm sorry. But, you know, hey, Tony prove me wrong, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he went off and, and did a lot of amazing things, and I said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to where the action really is, Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no one does that as, like, a career move. Now kids do. Now, they do. now they're like, oh, yeah, Portland, Oregon, yeah, that's a really hot spot to go. Oh, yeah, yeah Portland, yeah. Tucson. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, what brought you to Tucson.
1: So after I uh, got my degree at Clark, I uh, was poking around. Everyone was going, everyone was smart there. So they were all getting master's degrees. So I figured, well, I guess I have to get a master's degree. I I guess that's the next thing to do. There was like a card on the wall. It was like, University of Arizona, composition classes, master's degree. I was like, all right. So I sent in the card and and the professor there who's uh, named Dan Asia, who's a fantastic composer and um, interesting guy and he called me up and he said really you want to do this uh, okay i think you're in i said all right and that was it just sort of on a whim went to tucson arizona enrolled in the uh, classes there and uh yeah i was i was kind of like what is the most opposite of new england i could possibly find in Amer- and still be in america uh, that's pretty
0: opposite
1: pretty opposite so i went from you know Negative temperatures and digging my car out of snow every three days to a hundred degree heat and cactuses, and you know, nothing to do there either except hole up in the studio all day. Uh, (laughs) So, when I got to Clark, I I immediately was like, All right, well, I guess I got to put a band together. I mean, not Clark, I'm sorry, University of Arizona. I was like, Well, I guess I'm here. I got to put a band together. That's what I do. So, uh, met some. you know, musicians that were also at the school and some locals. And I put together like a little jazz band that we called Greasy Chicken. And we would play around like the pizza, the pizza place on every Wednesday. But eventually that built into like these big crowds. So we were, you know, and then we could play like the, uh, you know, sort of the fancy restaurants and do jazz gigs up in the foothills. Or we could come into downtown and play the Hotel Congress, which is more like a rock gig. And then one uh, year we won like a best, you know, like a local Tucson Music Awards won like best jazz group. And that's what ma- brought me to Craig. Cause they said, oh, you know, all the winners, we're going to do a compilation CD. This so is Craig's going out for business. You know, he was looking for right. business. So his team called the uh, newspaper and was like, hey, I'll make a free CD of these bands. You give me all, send me all the winners trying to so that when they would come, they'd love the studio and make their own record and he would get gigs out of it. So what ended up happening is, you know, we recorded that track with Craig and he sensed that I was already somewhat competent with recording because I had already been doing a lot of four track stuff. I had, there was an eight track at, at Clark and I had, you know, been into recording as just as, as you know, a practical use as being a musician. You have to know how to record mm-hmm. yourself. He said, oh, you seem pretty competent with this stuff. You want to be, you know, come be an assistant around here? It's like, yeah, sure I do. So uh, it was one of those kind of things, just sort of random. Met Craig, and um, and that's where I met uh, very soon after Giant Sand came in, which is um, How Gelb, and had Joey Burns and John Convertino who split off and created Colexico. Uh, soon after that. And those guys were funny because... You know, I came from uptight New England, you know, uh, jazz jazz land and and blues and classic rock, and things have to be pretty straight ahead for, for people to accept them, you know. And a place like Tucson is like a carny town, so it was all... It was, you know, jugglers on unicycles and crazy fire breathers and, you know, dancing in the desert and peyote spells and and spirit animals and stuff like that. So it was all of a sudden I was at the point working with this band that like Giant Sand, if you listen to it, like they can't really get through a song. You know, it's how how, how sabotage is it in the middle? If it's going too well, he'll throw in some kind of mess. Just to screw it all up, you know. I mean, that—that's the (laughs) aesthetic. Is like it's this is grooving too hard. It's got to stop right now, you know. Things like that. So, it it was kind of a neat unlearning experience for me. Like, oh, you know, it's okay to make a mess Uh, because sometimes in that mess, you're going to get some gems. You're gonna. It's going to take you to places that, you know, you can't theoretically go you know, just by knowing music theory, you got to drop all that and you got to be willing to do crazy things or or make mistakes or go with your instinct or, you know, that kind of a thing. So it was a, it was an interesting challenge.
0: So you unlearned a few things from the exactly. New England days.
1: Exactly. Yes. A lot of unlearning. I think that was, it's a pretty, you know, how Gelb would be the kind of guy where we would be, uh, you know, we'd rent, we'd borrow these Neumann microphones from from Jim Brady's studio. Another, he had like a high end studio where George Massenberg would record and Linda Ronstadt recorded, and all the big, even Neil Young did something there. Like all the big names and Disney movies and things. And he was real nice to us, and he would let us borrow uh, gear once in a while. So he had a couple of Neumann 87s that he would loan us one every now and then. And so we had these nice 87s. It was like the nicest mic we've had and ever, you know. And we're setting it up in the room and in the booth. And how Gelb whips out one of those, like, mini cassette recorders. that goes... So here we are with this little beat-up mini cassette recorder with this incredibly nice microphone recording this cheap little, you know, micro cassette recording of him walking around somewhere in the desert and talking. And I was like, yeah, that pretty much sums up the
0: uh, the Tucson aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> U87s and micro cassette recorders. Exactly. Exactly. So
1: 16 track, two inch, you know, MCI, that thing ran. We never cleaned the dust off it. I mean, it was, I don't think we set it up for like 10 years. We never.
0: Yeah. And, you know. and just for the audience, we're talking about uh, the two inch tape machine at Wave Lab, uh, run by Craig Schumacher. And yeah, he's had the same MCI for ages yeah it's the, still still the same one there it still runs
1: and uh, it's it's quite a beast it it took a long time uh, it, it's funny working with Craig because um, and, and we knew nothing about n- hardly anything I mean you know there was no real resource besides other engineers you know in, in that at that time uh, and you know and there was the one recording book you know and that was it and uh, we never used compression until we got a compressor and and, uh, put it in there, and how does this work? I don't know, this is threshold thing. Uh, I guess we turn that, see if it does anything. And, you know, I mean, that was really where we were coming from. Craig would sort of learn about something, learn how to do it, and then I'd sort of pick up on it after he kind of figured it out and then he sort of show me, oh, this is this is how the compressor works. Oh,
0: oh, okay. Oh, this is how an EQ works. Oh, all right. So your involvement with Craig and Wave Lab and Calexico seemed to culminate into you essentially touring with the band. Yep.
1: yes, quite a bit.
0: So your your musical chops are kind of getting reshaped because of your unlearning process working with Hal Gelb and, and Giant Sand. And at the same time, you're kind of expanding your recording skills via Craig and he of course he was doing some learning himself but exactly your your musical and recording brain was was definitely growing it seems at that time in Tucson absolutely absolutely and and
1: and you know there was a lot of time all we had was free time i mean you know i was talking with uh, how about it a, a couple of months back that you know i you know now i live in los angeles and i sort of miss the laziness You know i miss that free time i miss waking up and going well i guess i'm going to the studio i got nothing nothing else to do and you know i'll I'll sit around and what's going on today uh not much it's like okay well and then all of a sudden a couple people drop by and they're like well hey let's put up that track we were messing around with the other day and see what we got Uh, oh yeah wow wow that's pretty wild well what do you want to do with that i don't know what if we run that thing through an amp like, uh, yeah, whoa, that's pretty crazy, you know, and, and stuff like that, you know, you could really just experiment. We would stay up till four in the morning and then, and, and you know, I felt like I owned the city. I'd walk outside and nobody else around four in the morning out in the desert. You still can walk outside at midnight in your, in your shorts and a t-shirt and sandals because it's still a hundred degrees. <laughs> you're like, this is great, you know, I got everything right here. Uh, you know, and Howe even said it, he was like, yes, that lazy, you know, he's recorded, I don't know, like 50 records or something in in his life or something ridiculous. And he said, yes, that's a testament to my laziness. Because, because
0: there was nothing better to do but make records.
1: Is there nothing better to do but make records, you know. He's like, I never got my life together enough to do anything else. So all I did was make these records. Yeah,
0: the Southwest definitely has that. That laziness. I mean, it's not to say the people are lazy, but it's definitely the air is different. It's, yes. it's a different vibe from Los Angeles, Northern California, New York, of course, and for sure, it's 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 a different pace. And of course, as you get as you travel along the southwestern part of the country, and eventually you make your way into uh, New Orleans, into the southeastern part. Yeah, then it really. That humidity just changes everything, and, and it's kind of a combination of that southwest vibe, but with humidity. Right, there is that kind of laid-back
1: uh, attitude of of I guess the whole southern states kind of have that feeling of of relaxation. And as soon as I you know I go back to Tucson a lot, my wife's family's from there, so we go back there all the time. And of course, i I lived there for about 15 years when I did. So uh, you know we have a lot of connection there. So when we go back, it's very much a decompress. It's like, oh yeah, ah, oh yeah, this is what living is. You know, there's no pressure here. And, and that was the other thing about Tucson too was uh, just I was going to say that there's no music industry there. You know, no. there's there's no labels, there's no booking agents, there's nothing. Uh, you know, there's pe- in DIY people, and that's it. And yeah. it was really refreshing. So I think you know artistically a band like Calexico could could emerge because you know we were able to you know like I said experiment or do whatever we wanted and and add and like get into things like jazz or or get into things like mariachi music or fado or uh, you know flamenco or other southwestern styles or stuff you know from the 50s or uh, or uh, you know the 50s or early 60s that maybe wasn't very popular or that never you know was popular and and we could just pursue those
0: those paths because why not that's what we're that's what we're interested in but it's interesting you know the cost of living in Tucson is so inexpensive especially so cheap. you know compared to where where you live now oh um, yeah do you think because of that it allows for flexibility and you know uh, you know, being, being lazy or, or using your time for recording? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause
1: you know, all, pretty much all the musicians I know that aren't just full-time musicians, most of the musicians are just full-time musicians. I mean, that's all they do. And the ones that have a day job, uh, you know, they, they work in the service industry or whatever. They wait tables or they, you know, work at some, you know, bookstore or whatever, but they, you know, they know they're going, that's just to pay the rent.
0: And, and, Unless your aspirations are to obtain vast amounts of wealth, right? Uh, you can kind of live with a, a low overhead and, you know, modest uh, living in Tucson. Absolutely. But that, that cost of living uh, definitely can allow you to be flexible, and you're kind of golden right. in that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, my rent was, I think, 350 a month for like a one-bedroom apartment with a you know a backyard and a like <laughs> with a fire pit that was pretty much all i needed you know i i would just i didn't even have a car
0: for years i would just ride my bike around you know and well so what took you out of tucson why did you move to los angeles and at what point did audio production and recording work become such a prominent thing in your life as compared to i know you still play and you still tour sure. but it yep. seems that, that some of your ex- extra time now is spent doing recording, in fact, quite a bit of it.
1: Yeah, quite a bit of time, yeah. You know, Tucson, right, it was a lot of studio time. We were, uh, you know, after the first couple years of, of you know, goofing around at Wave Lab and just sort of figuring things out, mm-hmm. you know, the Colec- the Colexco record was successful. And artists like Nico Case came along, and and Devochka and M Ward, and then Iron and Wine, and all of a sudden, you know, uh oh, we're 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 actually making records now, and it was it was busy. we were, you know there was there was a period. So uh, you know, Craig's still pretty busy. They uh, we were booked, you know, solid. Um, so we even opened up a B studio. I had a B studio going in 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 Wave Lab. Wave Lab moved locations a couple times over the years and the in the second location we had a large B space which I called the upstairs studio and even that was booked like crazy. We had artists coming through all the time. So and we had people coming through that would even just to visit that maybe we didn't make a record with but you know I met or worked with a lot of sort of young bands that are that are popular now. And I say, "Hey, I, I met that guy 10 years ago and wow, he's got a hit song all of a sudden." <laughs> um you know things like that so it, it was kind of interesting but so yeah things started getting really busy and we we were into the recording uh part of it and and tape op came into our lives which was a pretty big important you know recognition from them that something was going on uh down here in the desert you know yeah it just kept expanding the horizons uh once um I was, I was touring with, I would tour with Colexico kind of on and off. I did mostly the States with them. They had some Europeans that they would tour with over in Europe. You know, like you got to keep your costs down. Right. Um, and they had re- sort of more regular members, and I would fill in here or there. And by 2008 or nine, I was more or less a regular member. And then uh, I got picked up by Iron & Wine. So I toured with them for a couple of years as the keyboardist. They didn't even know I play guitar. (laughs) was the keyboardist for them, until I started would shred for them a little bit, and Sam was like, "Man, you play guitar!" And uh, man, I didn't even know. And you know, so I I was getting all these uh, you know really cool gigs, but the studio work. I met uh, when I moved to LA. It was basically because my wife, who I had met in Tucson, got a job at uh, USC, University of Southern California. But you know, her whole life and family was Tucson. She grew up there, born there, grew up there. She really didn't know about moving. I had obviously moved around a bit in my life. So I was like, eh, moving's not that hard. You just get an apartment and you move. Yeah. And so so we did it. And um, it, it was interesting because it was right at that housing crisis, 2009, when every all the, so all the prices in LA dropped. So we were kind of like, hmm, all of a sudden, you know, an apartment was somewhat affordable but I mean, we were still tripling our rent. I mean, it was insane. Oh yeah, just yeah. to look at the numbers as a as a, as a person who's afraid to spend money, uh, it was shocking, you know, really to be like, oh my god, and and, and have to live in eat more squalor, and uh, you know. But we we ended up tripling our rent. We we found a pretty decent spot in downtown LA and and kind of a loft that had somewhat modern appliances. So I joke, you know, we moved to the future. <laughs> we we moved to the present actually you know we we uh because because living in tucson was like living in the 70s you know there was no there was barely running water and uh in, in fancy la we had a microwave and a dishwasher and everything was stainless steel and you know ooh, elevators uh parking
0: garages and all this you know crazy stuff so um so what did you end up doing when you got there did you did you set you know like any you know goals for yourself like oh okay well she's got a job so i guess i'm gonna kind of dig in or well at that point i was i was um you know
1: still touring with Colexico quite a bit so i had weekenders with them mm-hmm. um my first gig when i moved to la was playing the hollywood bowl with Colexico. You know so I'm like, well, I guess I'm doing all right in l a already, you, you know, but you know that's one day. there's three hundred other days of nothing, so right, uh, right. <laughs> but uh, but I met actually through uh Winston Watson, who's a drummer from Tucson, Winston, with, yeah, Winston played with Bob Dylan for years, yeah, um he was in. he lived in l a quite a bit on and off, so he hooked me up with the studio, New Monkey Studio, based in Van Nuys, uh, which was Elliot Smith's uh, studio that he put together. And uh, he actually got the Trident A-range board from Le Studio in Montreal and brought it down... Uh, yes, yes. Where Rush recorded all their records,
0: I, I know, and it's so sad. You see those videos on YouTube of of the studio completely in shambles. Yes, you know it's de- you know derelict building. It's t- it's terrible.
1: I know, I know. It's a, well, we've got the board, and we're fixing. You know, it's getting it's in pretty decent shape. I I mean, I use it for prees all the time. It's a little tough to mix with it right now. It does not the best master section, but. Uh, but the channels are great, so um, I, I use it for for everything. It's, yeah, great. It's so everything
0: sounds like Rush.
1: Everything sounds like Rush, or or all <laughs> things must pass, or or you know, let it be. And uh, the police used it, and so uh, you know, we were all. Uh, we even had Malcolm Toft come in, the the designer, you know, of Trident, and he thinks it's board number three uh, out of thirteen. Wow. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Interesting. So I, I hooked up with those guys. Winston's like, yeah, there's a studio. They need engineers. And I came in and I was like, oh, this is cool. This is like, they had a lot of vintage gear. They had the same MCI tape machine that Craig has at Wave Lab. I was like, all right, well, I know how to do all this. And and, and Pro Tools had become more you know common by that point, but I was still using tape and and you know, good on the tape. So I was using that a lot. And that's when I started, you know, pulling in bands to record there um and and the, the owners uh robert capadona and joel graves would feed me um artists you know that you know hey so and so wants to record something you know you want to uh, engineer this or but uh you know and then and around la and and then i've met other people around here you know there's uh, that band ozo motley oh, yeah. uh, great band uh they're all musicians. They all have side projects, so I work with a lot of them just doing various, you know, songs. for things. We did a song for Sesame Street a couple years ago. But L.A. turns out to be this crazy place where there's studios everywhere. Everybody's got a room like yours with a, 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 a bedroom converted into a studio, but a lot of the people really don't know how to engineer or you know, what they exactly they have and how to set it up and use it. So I find myself, I mean, I think every couple of weeks, I find a new studio with a backyard or somebody's house that I'll go in and, oh, that speaker placement's not so good. Let's move it here. Or, you know what I mean? Wow. Or like, like, like Ozo, like Ozo Motley, the bass player will dog. He had all these Burl digital audio converters and like this high end Burl stuff, like sitting in a pile not even being used. And I was like, dude, we gotta hook this stuff up. This is like top of the line stuff you got here. So I wired it all up for him and uh, you know, now he's using it and he's like, wow, this is great. So it, it's just sort of an endless spree of, of things, little things going on all over the place. Uh, and, and which is different a little bit from Tucson because there we specifically made albums. You know, we would hold up for two weeks, make an album, you know, However long it took, and, right. and we would kind of focus on that and make an album. And here, it's a lot more like one-off songs, or or you know, songs for films, or EPs, or kind of things that get used in various ways, but not so much bands making albums. Yeah, which is kind of interesting.
0: And the community there is is larger. Oh yeah, and continues. I'm sure your 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 reach. Grows on a daily or weekly basis in terms Completely. of people you know and meet and
1: oh, it's insane and and you know like
0: thinking about it as
1: different scenes. Uh, it's I'm kind of in like eight scenes <laughs> in in L.A. You know, I have my Venice scene where I do a monthly gig in Venice uh, with a singer Lacey Cowden and uh, and uh, and some of the musicians that that they know and then I have. Uh, a scene out in Pasadena with my funk band called gonzophonic and we do sort of funky jazz stuff um at the zona rosa cafe over there uh which is a really cool pre-outdoor uh gig on thursdays mm-hmm. and that and then up in the valley of course i have my scene i have uh, a, a fellow producer named greg cortez who does a lot more um kind of um pop music and and more contemporary sounding stuff he's a great mixer and uh is into sort of the modern tricks so he'll use me as a musician so you know he'll call me up and say hey can you lay down a bunch of keyboard parts a bunch of guitar parts and i'll and i'll take his sort of drums and bass and guitar track and turn it into like a basically a finished tune uh you know i'll put on
0: piano and organs and synthesizers and guitars you're, you're lucky in that sense you you have these this multitude of talent first of all on the musical side you know you know what the hell you're doing on so many different fronts musically speaking but you also know what you're doing on the recording end of it so you kind of can play different roles mix it up a bit and expand your scenes like, oh okay you don't need a recording engineer what about a keyboard player
1: <laughs> exactly no that's very true that's very true and and uh it's you know, and 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 it's funny. Like I said, you know, Sam Beam's. Like, I didn't even know you played guitar. Uh, different people don't necessarily know the skills. You know, I personally, or that you might have, until they sort of find, figure it out. You know, like uh, like I'm working on this film project right now. This is one of the first ones where it's like a pretty big motion picture, and they want me to produce the music. You know, no, no, no question of what my role is. I'm the producer, you know, like stamped in writing, signed the contract producer, getting a point, all that kind of stuff, you know, like, ooh, what a pro. So it's been interesting, but, but now as, but even so I'm doing all those things. I'm engineering, I'm playing uh, on everything. I'm organizing the band, you know, I'm rearranging the material. I'm writing the sheet music, um, you know, for. For the artist, the singer, the singer who's Kelsey Grammer of all people. uh, You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) okay, how surreal is this? Okay, so here I am in my little studio here, and that voice that's coming through the speakers is someone I've been listening to my whole life. Right. You know, (laughs) it's Kelsey Grammer, and he's a little flat, and I have to go out there and tell him he's a little flat, you know.
0: I can't think of Kelsey Grammer without thinking of Frazier.
1: Uh, you can't without thinking of Frazier or Sideshow Bob too I mean I just yeah. like I, I just immediately start doing Simpsons quotes when he's around and uh, <laughs> I gotta watch it you know but but you know it was funny cause, so we got these demo songs um, from Rivers Rivers Cuomo of Weezer wrote the songs so he, they, he sent me the tracks he sent me these things and I'm listening to them and they're very Weezer-y sounding it sounds like the 90s but my task was to make it sound like Kelsey is an artist from the 70s. They wanted to sound like Jackson Brown or or like uh Van Morrison, but it's like these Weezer tracks. So I'm my job is to basically deconstruct the 90s and make it sound like the 70s. Which for me is a pretty easy task because that's kind of what I do. So I was like, all right, well, this bass is this bass line in the Rivers version goes dun 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 dun. I'm gonna make the bass line go boo doo 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 boo boo doo doo doo. And I'm like, oh, that sounds more like the 70s, <laughs> you know. And the drums are. I'm going
0: to make
1: them go. So, you know, make it a lot sloppier. Uh Slow it down. Lower the keys a little
0: bit. Right. Know? Get Kelsey's in there. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So surviving in Los Angeles, while the cost of living is more, the opportunities seem to be vast.
1: Exactly. I think it's uh, very much so. And and it's only now 10 years later, I've been here 10 years I'm sort of seeing that those, and it's taken a long time to get to this point. I think, like Tucson's a town, you could move and you could book a gig immediately. <laughs> you know, there's three venues that will have you this week. You come to LA and it's like, oh, you got to book four months in advance. They might not even book you. They don't know you from Adam, you know, so you really kind of got to work your way up in the scene and, and, and meet people. A, a, a drummer early on said, LA's all about the hang, man. You just got to kind of hang out, not talk about work per se all the time, but just sort of, you know, say, you know, then people kind of get used to you or they get to know you a little bit and they're like, Oh, that Nick Lucas seems like a nice guy. Like, let's see if he'll, uh, people say he's a decent engineer. Let's, let's try him out. And so you end up jumping around to a bunch of different things until, until a gig like that comes along where it's like, okay, and this is a serious Movie with a serious budget and professional actors, and suddenly I'm in the professional scene, um, and that's great because that's then then those people are talking. I have the music supervisor, uh, Trisha Halloran, who is also a, a former DJ at KCRW, which was a big station here in town. Oh yeah, uh, you know she's she's got tons of connections, and um, and we work together really well. So I'm assuming that she's hopefully going to hire me for. Other gigs, you know. So that's that's basically it. But um, but you're right. I, I think now, ten years on, I look back and I say, was this the right move? It was. And and for me, it was, you know. Whereas someone like like Tony Maserati, who you're interviewing, was very gung ho at a young age and really went for it. Uh, I, I was not. <laughs> you know, I, I was semi gung ho, but I was kind of like, I'm into the art. I don't care about the the hits or whatever you know that's not my thing right yet somehow i'm being sort of dragged into it i feel like you know like the, the i guess it's maybe just a, a i don't know your
0: competence factor or something or you're just sticking around long enough i've never known you to be aggressive uh self-marketing type person no. so not really and yeah. it's I, I find it kind of it's funny that that you moved to la and you are just—I think people are recognizing you for the talent that you have, or the multitude of talents you have—and putting you to work. And you just totally—it's—it's a, it's a little different from how I know you in the past. But man, right. yeah, you're kick. It sounds like you're kicking ass. What? What are the challenges for you?
1: You know, I—I uh, I think a lot of it is—is is that kind of you know, artistic challenges, and it's almost more feeling like, where is this going, you know, what? what's the new thing that I could do, or, you know, because I, I, I'm not good in that formulaic world, you know, these sort of challenges where it's like, uh, you know, like that recent one where it's like, okay, Take this '90s sounding thing and make it sound like the '70s. Oh, that's kind of fun. All right, that's kind of a unique angle for me. Uh, but I'm always on the lookout for like a songwriter. I think that's going to challenge my notions of 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 what a great song is, or or be able to, you know, hear some hear some mystery in some of this some of the music. I mean, LA is tough because it is a pop town. You know, a lot of it is are we going to get signed? Uh, how do I have a radio song and that sort of thing. And, and that's not exactly where my interests lie. You know, I mean, it's a good problem to have, I guess, you know, it's not like the worst thing in the world, but, but I think that's what I, I, you know, I have this sort of fantasy of, of making, you know, freak out music all the time. And, and,
0: uh, but that stuff doesn't sell very well so <laughs> <laughs> you know nobody's asking for it <laughs> are there things that you don't like about being there
1: you know i, I mean the challenges in la is it's a, it's very much transportational and spatial you know it's it's like getting in that car like i got to drive to pasadena's like it's going to take at least an hour through horrible traffic just to get over there and sometimes i you know even taking a gig, it can kill your whole day. It's like I used to think, oh, I'll do these three things today. I was like, no, you can do one thing a day in LA. You know, don't don't try to do too much because you can't even get across town in less than an hour. So uh, it just, it, it it's a little frustrating. Whereas, you know, from Tucson, I, I would ride my bike to the <laughs> studio every day or walk, you know, it was less than a mile.
0: Well, and see the the funny thing about all of this is, is that you, while your network is vast and you named all these different places, all these different people, yet getting to them in an in, <laughs> yes. time efficient manner is really next to impossible. It's virtually impossible. And 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 the other
1: thing that really got WaveLab going, and, and like here we're coming around to Devatchka, is I met them, you know, in the early two thousands when they were just starting playing in Tucson to a room of three people, and I thought they were had something interesting going on, so I invited them back to the studio, which we could walk to. <laughs> and We walked there and drank some beers, and I showed them the studio and the space, and they were like, yeah, this place is cool. I want to record here. Good luck doing that in L.A., you know, I mean, okay, um, I saw this cool band I like. Uh, yeah, the studio, well, it's about a 45-minute drive. You got to take the 405. It's like that uh, Saturday at Live bit. Take the 405 to Mulholland. Take a left over the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, California. Uh, so, uh, you know, I can't convince people to come to the studio. I can't get them even to even take a look at it. You know, so it's a, it's a lot slower burn. Uh, and a lot of the gigs I get are, you know, now that I'm back with Davotchka, you know, these are friends I've had for years and years. <laughs> so it's it, it's kind of funny that you know, some of these two r- resources and people that I've met through Tucson are the ones that I'm still continuing to work with out here, yeah, uh, uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny the the old network is is uh, just because, yeah, it was easy to meet people there. Now it's like I'm just one there I, in Tucson, I'd be on, on the guest list uh, of of three peop- of three other people on the guest list in LA well there's no room on the guest list because we got to have all the press people and all the label people oh, yeah. and all the in- all the industry people and blah 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 so sorry there's no room for for our old keyboardist or whatever right it, it, it's just a different magnitude
0: well uh if you could talk a little bit more about your uh, engineering roles I seem to recall yeah. and I think I mentioned this on the phone the other day when we when we uh, were catching up. You did a bit of R&B and hip hop at uh, another studio. There was a period of time when you were I doing did. that. Speaking of Tony Maserati, you were doing hip hop and R&B. Absolutely. Tell me tell me more about that experience and and uh, any lessons learned from there and uh, what that experience was like. Yeah, that was that's cool. You know, and in some of the studios we had
1: done hip-hop on and off some of the other smaller uh, studios around town. So, uh, you know, it's pretty familiar, but uh, um, the way Winmark is called Windmark Studios in Santa Monica, and um, the owner was a guy who uh, had a big studio in Virginia Beach, uh, way out in Virginia, that uh, was... And they did a lot of the pop music of the 2000s, like uh, Britney Spears and NSYNC and He'd made all his money doing all this pop music, and he decided to open a you know studio in L.A. He bought the building, which was uh, Jimmy Jam uh, and Terry Lewis, the production team. They did all like the Janet Jackson stuff in the '80s. Oh yeah, yeah, a lot of '80s music. It was their studio, so they had they had wired this building up. So this was like I think they said they bought it for six million dollars or something. So this was an incredible building uh, that had. Five producer rooms on on the second floor. Every room had an SSL in it, and and then you know on PMCs and Osberger speakers, like a hundred thousand dollar monitoring system in every room. It was very plush. They had, um, and then the downstairs had you know a uh, uh, lounges and a, a pool table and a, a full kitchen and and eating area. I mean, it was a full production thing, and and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they had cameras everywhere um, in all the vocal booths and and everywhere going back to their office so they could watch what was going on and comment while all this stuff was happening. It it was pretty incredible. So the the new owners, they took out the video stuff. Basically, it was like a house for uh, Def Jam, Universal, and uh, a couple of other labels that would it was very much a mill. So when I got there, uh, another engineer friend had said, hey, they're looking for engineers and assistants. Um, maybe you should go check it out. So I went down there. I met the main people. And uh, there was still, they hadn't opened yet. So we're they were still putting the studio together. So I did a lot of just, you know, wiring up preamps and, and patch bays and things like that. But but this place was incredible because it had a there was a very famous uh, studio designer that I can't think of his name right now uh, that that laid out the the room but um, laid out the building I should say but they had a whole closet you know of Elko connectors you know huge closet and you could basically patch any room to any other room with these giant Elkos hmm. they had uh, you know tie lines for your mics in every room. Even even the garage underneath where everyone parked their Maseratis and Teslas and Range Rovers, you could, and in the kitchen and in the in the pool room, in the lounges, in the bathrooms, in the hallways, there was a spot to plug in a microphone. So, and I would do that sometimes, like, you know, it was like, a rapper has got a good pool game going. I was like, all right, we'll just plug in a microphone down there by the pool table. I mean, you got an idea, let us know, and we'll hit record, you know. <laughs> you know seriously. And, and uh, you know, one time I, I was like, there was, you know, you never know, do the whole trick where, the, the whole problem where you're using like an antelope or some sort of clock, and you set your Pro Tools to one, but the clock's set at 48. Oh, yeah. And you you record, and you it messes up your whole thing forever, and you're screwed. Right. And the only and the only way to get out of it is to re-record all the tracks into like another Pro Tools system. Uh huh. With I, the proper. Uh, oh
0: yeah, I've had that problem probably once. Yes, you learned very. Oh, I quickly learned very quickly, and that that never again. happened again. It never happened again. So there was a, a young
1: assistant that messed up, did this whole session. The guy was like twenty-four tracks at, at the wrong sample rate. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I know what we can do. We'll just patch Studio A to st- outputs to Studio B inputs and just re-record it back over to another Pro Tools rig at the proper sample rate, line it back up to the grid, and we're done. And sure enough, that's what we did. I was like, this is pretty amazing. So on the that technical side of it, uh, I mean, it was really cool and, and just, you know, fun to work with the really high end gear. You know what I mean? Uh, they had all top microphones and telefunken's and, you know, the famous was, you know, Sony 800 that a lot of ra- rappers like to oh, use. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, uh, Tremaine Williams, uh, who's been on the show, he worked for Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis out of that building, if I'm oh, really? correct. No kidding. Yeah, great guy. I, I heard a bit about you know the extensive nature of that building from him oh cool but uh yeah in- interesting well so you hadn't spent much time in the world of hip-hop and r&b and in and general or urban music right um, what was that like for a guy like you who is used to you know the music that you've been used to, like davochka and nico case and Right, yeah. folk rock yeah, yeah all that all that kind right, of southwest uh, uh southwestern sounding uh, stuff <laughs> yeah it's 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 pretty different right i mean um
1: a lot of it was just getting really good at pro tools yeah um getting quick at chopping things up and and most of what we were doing was tracking vocals because um you know in that world the division of labor is is very is fairly strict. Um, you have your beat maker, and they make the beats. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have your rappers and they rap. You have your singers and they sing. You have your top line producers who will give you the melody or the hook. And you have your producer, which you know kind of brings them all together. And you have your engineer who sits in the chair all day, and and you have the assistant engineer who sits right next to the engineer. <laughs> um and sets up the mics and keeps things clean and gets cookies and and milk for people and uh goes on food runs. Oh that's the runners the runners do right. that.
0: W- was that odd for you? That that was that division of labor strange to you? It was a little strange.
1: I mean, it and 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 because of the nature of it, I was an assistant engineer, but I'm got bumped up to engineer very quick. I mean, within the first couple of months. They were like Okay, dude, you're going from $10 an hour to $35 an hour once you're sitting in the chair. And I was like, oh, that's actually not too bad. Uh, So, but, um, you know, a hip hop session, and and a lot of the ones I was doing was it was very much like throw cats in a bag and see if they mate. It was like this producer and this rapper um, and this, uh, you know, beat maker have never worked together before we're just going to throw them in a room and see what they come up with so so yeah i had to learn a lot of you know terminology you know you know simple things like a chorus they call a hook uh you know let's work let's work on the hook first i'll get the hook down and and again it is more formulaic too when you're doing a pop vocal it's like you track the lead vocal once you get a good one you time align it you auto-tune it i mean you're
0: printing with auto-tune you know, just like any other genre, you know, let's just take metal. You know, there's certain types of of uh, you know whatever of the subgenres of metal that there's sure. the rules, and so you know, I mean, here we are, kind of fascinated by the, the hierarchy of all of that within the the world of hip hop or R and B, which actually I think there's there's actually a little bit hip hop very different from you know R and B in that regard. Yeah. But all of these genres of music sure. have, have their strange rituals and rules and uh yes. hierarchies and ways of doing things. And so Well, it's
1: interesting because I'm I was coming from a place like working with a guy like M. Ward, Matt Ward, who would I mean if you put a digital synthesizer or Pro Tools in front of him, I mean he would cringe and cry and run out of the room and block his ears and be like, No, I, I can't hear synthesizers give me that vintage guitar and the vintage amp and okay everything's fine is it vintage is it tape okay then we're cool you can't handle the modern stuff at all right. you know you know and I, and I was never like that I I had been doing MIDI programming since you know that the since it started at the 80s and 90s so you know I kept up on Pro Tools I learned on sound designer you know and, and had the four track version of Pro Tools and you know I came up with it so it was a pretty natural to be chopping things and I had worked with DJs in the 90s and 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 sample bands and hip-hop bands and then so so you know I'd, I had familiarity with samplers and, and MIDI and that sort of stuff but really it was yeah it, it was it was kind of getting to know hip-hop um, you know and I'd grown up listening to it too so it wasn't like completely outside of my wheelhouse but and, uh, and as a jazz musician, I understand jazz harmony and gospel music and things like that too. Black music in general, it was not too hard of a fit to you know. And and in that environment, it, it's a very creative uh, session because usually a typical session would go like you know the uh, the artist would come in and the, and the producer and whoever that they're bringing. And uh, it could be some friends or, or or other you know rappers or who knows. Everybody will be hanging out in the studio. We we'll spend the first two or three hours just listening to stuff, pretty loud, very loud. We would listen to other people's raps, you know, hits of the day, old school stuff, uh, whatever we're into that day. Two, three hours of just just listening to stuff as before the session even starts. And then maybe we'd come across the track and be like, dang, let's do something like that. You know, oh, okay, yeah, let's do something like that. Then maybe we'd kind of program the beat. And then once once we decide to work though, it's fast and furious. I mean, it is like the producers, you know, the beat maker producer has got an idea. He's like, where's the keyboard? Boom, okay, let's give me a drum machine. Boom, 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 okay, yeah, let's use that beat. Boom, boom, all right, here's the snare. Boom, boom, here's the hi-hat. Okay, yeah, quantize that, okay, great. That that sounds pretty good. Give me a bass line. Give me a bass. Uh, all right, pull up this. Uh, let's use this uh, instrument patch or whatever. You know, pull up a bass sound. Okay, that's pretty cool. Let's lay that down. Okay, here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Okay, those are pretty cool. All right, let's see. Uh, let's give me give me a piano sound. All right, that's 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 all right. Give me uh, something different. How about a Rhodes? Oh yeah, that's cool. Let's put that down. All right, bam, boom, bang, ding, dude. There we go. Sixteen bars here. Sixteen bars there. This is the cook. There's the chorus. Bam, it's done. All right, let's get the rapper in here. Rapper, get in there. Uh, I don't know what to do yet. Just start doing things. We're playing the track. The rapper just starts to, yeah, I'm walking down the street. I'm doing all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. That's pretty good. That's third line is the hook. Repeat it again. All right, good. Yeah.
0: I mean, it is like
1: bam, 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 Meanwhile,
0: playlists are piling
1: up. Playlists are piling up like crazy. You know, most of it's MIDI, so it's not taking up a lot of space. But yeah, the rapper, the rapper's doing things. The playlists are piling up and we're chopping things up and sliding them around and moving it over here and moving it over there. And then, say, and then he's like, okay, uh, we need a female singer. So he'll call up, you know, somebody. All of a sudden, you know, within 20 minutes, there's a female vocalist in the room. <laughs> Throw her in the vo- booth. She just goes, ah. No, nah, that's the try again. Woo, 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 woo. And yeah, that's pretty good. Then she's, la, la, la. Oh, la, la, la. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. All right. La, la, la. And then we chop that up and put that, okay, double it. Okay, triple it. Okay, four times it. Um, okay, come up with a harmony to it. Okay, double that, triple it, four times that. Okay, come up with another harmony. Okay, double it, triple it, four times that. So I'll have 16 tracks of just the la-la-la female vocal, just, just as just a, And, and you're flying track. that around all the different uh, hooks. And flying that, out, and then you copy and paste, you put that in where all the hooks go. And you just gotta be pretty quick on your toes. I mean, you gotta be really good at Pro Tools and kind of not break the flow too. A lot of it's about the vibe and flow.
0: About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with sampling makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app Check it out We're almost out of time And I want to get to this with you Because we we touched on this in our, In our phone call Preceding this interview And that was Diversification We talked about You've really Managed to survive Because of All of these different things You know You can engineer You can play You can go on tour You can do soundtracks You can produce You can play many many roles And that has ultimately Led to your survival Would you agree? Agreed and so advice to and i and i don't even want to say the up and coming person because there's a lot of people you know 40s 50s 60s you know that they're still struggling and they really want to come up with you know a plan what are your thoughts yeah well
1: i mean i mean i was in my 40s when i started working at this hip-hop studio i mean i came in as an intern or as a as an assistant engineer with all the other kids straight out of college you know so i had to <laughs> you know i mean i got bumped up the ranks fairly quick cuz I, I i knew how to engineer already but you know you're still until you prove yourself you're still just right there with the with the with the lowly ones you know you're still out there with the beginners you know proving yourself all the time so it's it's never like i never feel like oh i'm totally like i'm there i'm i've got it yeah i would say you know, it, it's funny. I had a manager early on that couldn't figure me out also. He he said, your career is like fractions. <laughs> you know, you got all these little fractions of things going on, but not one big thing. And there's a lot of advice out there that says, focus on your one big thing, and that's how you become successful.
0: Yeah. Um, I
1: and I suppose maybe that's true. I don't know. I I get bored easily. So I just, you know like i could join Colexico, was like do i really want to play those songs every day like i could do other things yeah. you know there's millions of songwriters out there i love working with other songwriters i still like doing people's first records you know or or second record or you know early on i like to make gems i like to
0: uh, i like to not use a click track you know uh things like that you like to run counter counter to that advice and I can identify with that because I have some friends who have said you know don't dabble but you know I like mixing records and but I like mastering records too and I don't want to do either one every single day of the week I like to mix it up a bit so you know doing what you're doing I think is fantastic
1: well, it's fun, you know, and I look on my calendar and I'm like, okay, so, uh, yeah, I'm producing music for films uh, this week. Next week, I'm, I'm going, uh, you know, through the South and Midwest with Davatchka for two weeks on a tour. As Soon as I come back from that, I've got a podcast interview with Matt Boudreau, and then I got to fly to Denver and do another talk with uh, students uh, uh, out there for a class. And then I've got, uh, you know, I was teaching a bit at Loyola Maramount University here too, teaching audio to the sophomores and, and juniors. Yeah, and then I'll, right, I'll get called by Ozo Motley, who will want to do something, you know, for a television show. Or I'll get called by, you know, Joey from Calexico, who will say, hey, remember these tracks we recorded years ago? Well, we're remixing one of these songs,
0: and it's going to get used in something. And if we're if we're talking about fractions, what's the common yeah. denominator in all of those situations? Do you think? Why does Oza Motley call you? Why does you know the college call you? What 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 do you bring to the table? Do you think objectively?
1: You know, I I, th- I think early on there is a sense of that you know uh, not just that you know I'm a nice guy and fun to hang around with and fun and fun and funny that's all nice to be a good personality but i think there's the the fact that like when the music is happening i'm listening you know i'm really listening and i'm deep and i'm and i'm considering the history of music and i'm considering it all the way to back to beethoven and bach and and the tribal dancing of the you know thinking about the history thinking about uh music from all over the world thinking about and 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 sure you might just be some pop singer with your little pop song but i'm considering what is the gravity here you know what is deep about this mm-hmm. what what is this about and i think you know a lot of the artists kind of sense that in the room that like if i'm if i'm suddenly into it or i'm i'm singing along or i'm dancing or i'm snapping my fingers or if i jump up and I'm like, oh, you know what this needs? This needs, you know, this keyboard or that guitar or blah, blah, blah. And I'm excited about it. Then they feel like, hey, there's a real music guy (laughs) that likes what I'm doing. You know, I'm giving them approval just by... And I kind of have an attitude of like, make music now, they can tell us why it sucks later. You know, because if you start judging while you're working, you just don't don't get anywhere. And I, I think once I personally... Stopped trying to make a living at this, or just even stop trying to worry about the success side of it. Mm-hmm. Things started falling into place really easily. <laughs> like, stop spending money on trying to tour as my own band, and then all of a sudden, I had a bunch of songs get in TV shows, and and I made bunch m- bunch of money out of nowhere. You know, and you're like, okay, well, gee, I kind of gave up on this, and now every people are requesting my songs. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's, I don't know. It's just sort of bizarre. I, I like to let the serendipity happen, you know, set up the conditions for magic to happen. And it probably will.
0: Do, and do you think that there's an element of, and I, I know this may sound kind of Pollyanna Pollyanna ish, but, or naive, but do you think if you just do the right thing and, and pay attention and be mindful of what people are doing, do you think that the money follows
1: i think so you know i think you show up you do a good job i mean in la it's 90 percent showing up because this is such a flaky place people just flake all the time they book a thing and then they cancel
0: <laughs> then um, they realize
1: they don't want to drive over there yeah they realize they don't want to drive over there or they don't have the budget that they thought they had yeah. and uh, or the project is went down or or whatever uh so, there's a lot of that kind of that kind of flake factor and and um, but I, I show up. I don't flake. You know, it takes me a little while maybe to get around to booking it and, and getting figuring out the dates and things because I have so many weird little things going on. There's a lot of strange dates and times, but but I'm not killing myself booking trying to book every day or trying to book a million things. I just, you know, I try to I work with the people that genuinely want to work with me. You know, I have a couple of artists that email me over the past week while I was out of town saying, hey, I want to do a record. I want you to produce it. And another one, you know, I want you to I want to do a record. I want you to produce it. And it just becomes like, "Okay, thanks. Great. Yeah. All right. Let's do that. Let's talk about that. You know, figure out what they want, where they want to do it, what what instrumentation we're talking about, you know, all the little things, what studio they want to work at. Some can't afford to work at New Monkey, so I may have to take them to a smaller studio somewhere. You know, but I still try to work, especially with the smaller artists that are up and coming, because you never really know where it's going to lead. You know, I mean, we got really lucky with this last Adrian Brannan that, that Craig, you know, called me in to help uh, produce and play on in Tucson. She had like the top 20 highest selling album on iTunes last week. Really? Wow. Um, totally independent. Wow. She's like a country cowboy singer like like she's a she's a real cowgirl that ropes horses and lives out off the grid and she writes these these songs and i just you know i helped her arrange her her songs and craig and i we recorded it all live um with a live band in at wave lab and it's in the top it was in the top five it made it to the top five of itunes country records you just never it's know like, Yeah, you just never know. I mean, and we've been working with her for a few years and thought she had talent and she's very good, you know, and she's very good on the social media. She keeps in touch with her her people that love her and bam, that's how you do it. And it's just for years and years of working together, you know, I got the Iron and Wine gig the same way. I played one show with Iron and Wine, opening for him. And he said, man, you're pretty cool, keyboard player. And then uh, five years later, I did a record with them with Iron and Wine uh, and Calexico which became pretty popular. And then five years after that, he called me to, the manager called me to to join the band. Hmm. You know what I mean? It was just like, they kind of keep you in the back of their mind as, you know, maybe this is a guy that we can work with. And I just try to be cool and say, yeah. And you are you're a
0: useful gentleman, aren't you?
1: Just be useful
0: and egoless, too, you know, like,
1: I mean, ego when it's warranted.
0: Well, so if people want to find out more about you, Nick, where can they do that? Yes, uh, I got the website, you know, you can pop
1: around NickLuca.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, too, NickLuca, at NickLuca12 on Instagram. I like to post uh, pictures of my travels, mostly, so I'll put things up once in a while. But I'm not the, the best on social
0: media. Doesn't seem to be hurting your career.
1: Yeah, you just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, it's just such a word of mouth kind of industry. I think. Yeah. I feel like you know, and and the people that might find me because I did something big and famous is maybe not who I necessarily want to be working with. <laughs> uh, it's more like the the people that seek out find the collexical record and go, "Wow, you played that guitar solo on that song. Could what, could I get you to play that? Something like that. Uh, you know, that's those that that's what's fun for me is like people other people that find the gems you know that uh, because because I'm a real gem I'm a gem scrounger you're a gem gem collector I'm a total gem collector I like to find the the hidden gems that 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 nobody else has has discovered and you know and then that was what's so bizarre about like Tucson was I thought I found a hidden gem that no one else had discovered and then all of a sudden two years later uh, you know, Nico Case is on the David Letterman show, or you know
0: what I mean? It's everyone's discovered it. It's oh, yeah. A, it wasn't such a hidden gem after all. It's been great talking with you. It's been a while. I, I'm trying to make some plans of coming down to LA on a kind of a semi regular basis and, uh, you know, hang out and see people. So I will. Uh, LA is all about the hang, man. LA is all about the hang.
1: So come down here and hang, and I'll take you wherever you want to go.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll come down to LA and, and we'll meet up. All right, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. I will just chat with you later. So thanks again, man. That's awesome. Okay. See ya. Nick Luca here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. I want to be sure, and of course, thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale for the working class audio theme music and Chuck Smith for his lovely voice and want to thank you. Appreciate you coming back week after week and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,